Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm Dan Malthrop, chief executive here and also a proud member. Today's February 12th. You're with Virtual City Club Forum. President Donald Trump's second impeachment trial continues today, and it continues to highlight the deep divisions within the Republican Party that began four years ago when he won the party's nomination. Throughout his presidency, Mr. Trump elicited a profound level of loyalty from his base and managed to maintain a tight grip on Republican lawmakers. Even the January 6th attack on the Capitol left many unswayed. Recent polls suggest 82 percent of Republicans still approve of President Trump. 64 percent still believe he won the election. And similar numbers say they would join a new party if he started one. This leaves Republicans at a crossroads. For the sake of the party, do they embrace Trump or divorce him? And how much does the outcome of the Senate impeachment trial affect this decision? There's another way to think of this as well. What's in the best interests of the GOP? And what's in the best interests of the nation and democracy? And what kind of overlap is there among all of these? Today, we'll talk with two Republican strategists about decisions facing the Republican Party, how those decisions will be affected by Donald Trump's likely acquittal, and the chance of a new third party. Let me introduce our Friday Forum speakers. Sarah Longwell is president and CEO of Longwell Partners, a full-service communications firm in Washington, D.C. She's also a publisher of The Bulwark, a news network started in 2018 that provides political analysis and reporting. A graduate of Kenyon College, Ms. Longworth is a lifelong Republican and and a Republican strategist, co-founder of Republican Voters Against Trump, now called the Republican Accountability Project, and the former national board chair of Log Cabin Republicans. Also joining us, Tim Miller. He's a Republican political consultant and a writer for The Bulwark and Rolling Stone, a colleague of Ms. Longwell's. He was previously political director for Republican Voters Against Trump and communications director for Jeb Bush's 2016 presidential campaign, as well as a spokesman for the Republican National Committee. A graduate of George Washington Washington University, Mr. Miller began his career working on various gubernatorial and congressional campaigns before moving on to the presidential campaigns of John McCain and John Huntsman. If you have questions about our topic today for either of our speakers, text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. Or if you're on Twitter, tweet them at the City Club, and we will work them into the program. Tim Miller, Sarah Longwell, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. Hey, I wish I was in Cleveland with y'all. We we wish you were, too. You would not be happy about the weather, however. Um, But let me start with you both. Um, Simply, what do you see this week— uh, revealing about the state of the GOP and the future of the GOP. Sarah Longwell, let's start with you. Yeah, well, this is the week that the Republicans get to decide what their future is. Uh, they can either vote to convict Donald Trump and put a stake through his political future, keep him from um, you know, either running again as the Republican nominee or splitting off to start his own party as he's threatened to do, or they can vote to acquit him and Donald Trump will run the party for the foreseeable future. Um, And what is sort of stunning to me is that after just losing the White House, the Senate, the House, um, that 
for and then and then in, inciting this insurrection that a lot of Republicans seem to think still that having Donald Trump be the leader of the party, uh, even even sort of deplatformed and out out in Mar-a-Lago, is the better of the two choices, uh, which is something I can't fathom. Tim Miller, what about you? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I pretty much agree with Sarah, except for I'm not sure that they have the choice, right? I, I think that the party's voters have kind of chosen Donald Trump for them, and they're just listening to the party's voters. Um, uh, I think that even if they decided to convict him, uh, that would probably lead to a you know deep intra-party feud. You know, I think Rand Paul was, uh, I, I think you know, uh, maybe unintentionally uh, admitted what was happening here when he said that if we voted to convict, a third of the Republican voters would leave the party. Uh, I think that sounds about right to me. Um, you'd lose about 30 to 40 percent of the Republican voters. Um, they would, you know, follow, again, not Trump himself because he would have been convicted, but some kind of Trump figure into a nationalist party. And I think that the Republican uh, elected officials in Washington, with a few exceptions, a few brave exceptions, don't... Um, you know, don't want to have that fight right now. And I think that they look at the playing field and despite the fact that the Democrats, you know, control all of Washington, they, they see, you know, that had, had 90,000 votes flipped uh, differently in key swing states, um, the Republicans could control all three uh, um, levers of power. I think they see that there's a big uh, advantage right now in the Electoral College and the Senate that benefits the current Republican coalition. And so they don't feel like they need to make the drastic change that, that, that would be made if they were to convict him um, and, and lose and, and kind of have to regenerate the party, you know, by bringing back some of the old suburban voters. So I, I just I think that is the political calculus that's being made. So I, I don't you know, I, I don't know that the decision, you know, the decision that's in their hands is really more about Donald Trump's personal future. I think kind of the decision about what's happening with the party has been made for them a bit. Tim Miller is a writer for The Bulwark, a political consultant and strategist as well, and uh, a f formerly a, a, a lifelong Republican. And we'll get into why he's not a little bit later. Um, but I, but this question, I mean, the the, the risk of getting of losing thirty to forty percent of the party, Tim. Um, there's also a risk of losing moderate. Republicans as well. But is it just that the numbers of moderate Republicans, the kind of Mitt Romney wing of the party, isn't large enough or substantial enough? Or is it just that they're not vocal enough? I think that uh, I think they've already lost a lot of those voters. Um, a lot of them were Republican voters against Trump. And we were grateful to have them as part of our uh, team last year. Um, uh, some of them left earlier in 2018. Uh, some of them left even before that, you know, um, during the Tea Party wave or Sarah Palin. Um, you know, so I, I think that a lot of these Republican voters have already moved on into the Democratic Party. And so the Republican politicians don't see them as part of their coalition anymore. I, I think that there's still room for more to be cleaved off. And I think that if you look at the uh, results from, from this past election in 2020, um, there were a lot of very literal Republican voters against Trump, and they were people that voted for Republicans down ballot and voted for Joe Biden um, or didn't vote at the top line. You know, if you keep, you know, feeding those people um, broccoli that they don't want, you know, eventually they're going to leave too, right? So, you know, I do think that there is a risk of losing still more people if they if they if the party doubles and triples down on Trumpism and losing some of the people that say might have 
you know, in um, in North Carolina voted for Tom Tillis and Joe Biden. There was a significant and decisive portion of voters like that in a few states, um, but but uh, but they're not. It's not nearly a third of the party like like the MAGA bases. Sarah Longwell, our viewers and uh, and listeners um, who have been say listening to NPR this last week, or who have read a profile of you in the New Yorker, will know uh, how active you were in encouraging the 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 party switching or the the ballot you know the ballot switching that Tim alluded to Republicans voting for Biden um, why did you do that oh um, boy nobody's asked me that in a while um, <laughs> why did I do it I did it because um, look from the moment that Donald Trump showed up on the political scene and I and I mean that in the 2014 Barack Obama is a Muslim sense. Um, I have been against him, revolted by him. Um, I, I just, I, I was, I was absolutely stunned when he became the nominee of the Republican party. It showed me how out of touch, uh, I was with what the party was, was interested in. And, um, and I felt like, uh, I felt like he was an existential threat to our democracy to decency, to the truth. I, I, I mean, I just have never seen somebody lie so much and so cavalierly. Um, I think that somebody with uh, both his business history and uh, his history, whether it's assaulting women or the way he talks about people, the way he talks about Muslims. I mean, this is just a person who I thought it was a very clear cut case of, of someone who was unfit uh, to hold the office of president of the United States. And um, I got to say, my, my buddy Tim was involved before I was, though. Um, he, he was back, you know, he was coming off Jeb Bush's campaign. He set up our principles pack, and they were really fighting uh, Donald Trump. I was, I was kind of just working at a PR firm and was a little bit more of a passive observer. Uh, but once Donald Trump got elected, and, and the, I mean, the one thing that I did was, was keep the, the National Log Cabin Board from endorsing him. Uh, but once he was elected... I just started finding myself getting into every room I could of Republicans like me who wanted to think about what could we do about this problem. And I think um, what I saw in a lot of those rooms was people thinking about like, well, do we start a third party? Can you primary Trump? You know, people were, were but they were sort of, they didn't know what to do. And um, I said, well, there's a few things we could do out of the gate. Like, let's go do research. Let's understand what's going on with the Republican Party, which is why I started doing so many focus groups with Republican voters to figure out why they'd voted for Donald Trump. Um, and, and frankly, from that research stemmed a number of projects. Republicans for the Rule of Law was our first project, which is uh, where we tried to protect the Mueller investigation from political interference. And then basically all of that research informed our understanding of who could be peeled off within the Republican Party. Um, but I just I just threw myself all in. I ended up leaving my company and starting a different company. And, and look, Donald Trump was a scary figure to me. And I felt like the best, one of the things that I learned doing a lot of the work that I'd done in the LGBT world was a lot of times the most effective work comes from people who are holding you accountable from within your own party or who are advocating within your own party. And so I just, I, the, the Dems were in full resistance mode. Somebody from the Republican side had to stand up and say, this isn't who we are, this isn't who we want to be, and kind of fight him from the inside. I, I, I mean, it's sort of elementary that the reason more people didn't stand up was because he was then president. And, and it's really hard to, hard to do that. Was it, um, 
emotionally, I would have to imagine that as a somebody who has devoted a lot of your time, energy, personal and professionally, personally and professionally to the Republican cause, to find this um, the rise of this figure under the Republican banner to be not just dispiriting but kind of heartbreaking. Tim, you want to take that? We can both speak to this. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I thought that was coming at you. Um, I was just thinking oh, about how uh, dispirited and heartbroken I was while while thinking about what your answer was going to be. Um, look. Uh, yeah. I mean. Uh, I mean. At a most at the most personal level, you know, for me, uh, I mean, I I had been in the inside of Republican politics and Republican rooms. I mean, these were my friends. These were my business colleagues. And and you know, I, I think you know we'll get more into the history later in this hour, but. You know, I I knew the possibility that kind of a nationalist, you know, bigoted populist could kind of take over the Republican Party. And I'd been in primaries. I, I saw what, what the, you know, that there was an appetite for this among voters. I lived through the Romney, you know, Huntsman primary where I was first with Huntsman, then with Romney and saw how barely Romney eked out, you know, a victory against Rick Santorum and Newt Gingrich. And so I knew that somebody could win. What I didn't think is that somebody, as you know, Sarah laid out all of the all of the demerits of Donald Trump. Um, you know, we could spend all day on that. Like, I, I didn't expect somebody, all of my friends, to just go along with that, right? And, and I didn't expect somebody as kind of clownishly and buffoonishly uh, anathema to all of the things that Republicans once stood for all the things that I thought that I was getting involved in. Um, you know, I think that was the part, those were the two things that hurt the most, right? Watching my friends just go along with that and thinking to myself, man, when I've been in this, these rooms all my life, from when I was a kid, you know, I was volunteering for campaigns when I was in high school, like from when I was, could barely drive and look like I was 12 and was an intern on Bill Owens' campaign in Colorado, um, all the way up till 2016 was Jeb. You know, when we were talking about you know, uh, uh, the American idea, right? The shining city on the hill, um, you know, pluralism, free markets, free people, I and mean, just all of these kind of fundamental underlying things that I, that I thought everybody, you know, that I was in these rooms with and that I was friends with agreed with me on. And then to have somebody like Donald Trump run that's like, no, you know, America isn't anything special. <laughs> screw all of these guys, screw the immigrants, keep them out. Um, you know, I, and and for everybody to have everybody go along with it, yeah, it was extremely dispiriting. It was, ex I mean, it was heartbreaking. And and if I could just add, just because uh, similar similar to that, the thing is, is that it wasn't. Think about Donald Trump. Is it wasn't a policy question, right? So a lot of politics and the the prior to Donald Trump, you know, the 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 dividing lines were around policy and things that you believe. This was a values question, like deeply a values question. And so when you would see people going along with Trump who you had respected, and especially I think if you're kind of our age, right? So I came of age when Bill Clinton um, was getting impeached. Like I was 18 years old. So he's getting impeached for having an affair with somebody who's just a few years older than I am. And I thought, I listened to Republicans at the time. One of the reasons I was drawn to the Republican party is they had such a clear message then about right and wrong, about the constitution, about not lying to the American people, about the way you comported yourself and you don't besmirch the office of the presidency. And to watch, and, and there was a real values boom around that time. Character mattered. That was, that was what we talked about as conservatives. It was a bedrock principle, that and objective truth. And so to sort of watch the everybody that you knew suddenly have totally situational ethics, well, he doesn't mean that, or well, yay, lies, uh, well, um, on, top of, on top of 
clearly character not mattering. Clearly all of the things that you've been told for 20 years as a person in this movement, nobody seems to think anymore. It's like invasion of the body snatchers. It's like, it's like you are looking at the sky and you're like, that sky's blue. And everyone's like, no, it's green. I promise you it's green. It's that, it's that feeling of, am I going crazy or is the world going crazy? Um, you know, I, I like, uh, I've never ever, the parable of the emperor having no clothes was so apt during this period of time. Cause you felt like you were the little boy the whole time saying that guy's not wearing any clothes and everybody else is bought into a big lie or cover up. Um, and, and you're just sort of by yourself and you're like, are they crazy or am I? And that, that was how it felt to me. We're talking with Sarah Longwell and Tim Miller today. They're longtime political consultants. Uh, Tim is also a writer for The Bulwark. Sarah has been the publisher of The Bulwark and also formerly chair of Log Cabin Republicans. And we're talking about the current state of and the future of the Republican Party, the grand old party. If you have a uh, question for our panelists today here at your City Club Forum, text it to 330-541-5794 or tweet it at the City Club, and we will work it into the program. Sarah Longwell, how did we get here? Because it is not uh, really the, the it, is not, it is no longer the party of, of the, the values that you described during the Clinton impeachment era. We got here for a lot of reasons. Um, there's not a silver bullet reason. Tim may have some better answers to this because I think he saw it happening from within the party. Uh, like I think he could see the evolution in real time working in politics. I will say from my perspective, uh, coming at it more from the media side, look, the rise of social media, the bifurcation of media ecosystems in general. I mean, one of the things that I, it's not that people miss it because everybody knows that Fox News has played a major role. But when people say, Look, the voters are what um, are what these legis- what these officials are scared of, right? They say they're scared of the voters. That's true, but more to the point, they're afraid of the media ecosystems that they live in. Like there are very few people in the Republican Party who are more powerful than Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, um, and even even figures that I thought didn't matter. I didn't think they didn't think they really had purchase in the Republican Party, like Alex Jones or the folks over at OAN, One America News Network or Newsmax, like that stuff was always kind of a crank side that didn't matter. Um, But as Republicans became more siloed over time uh, in 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 their media bubbles, like you look at something like impeachment and the case that was presented the other day and you think, well, how could anybody watch that and not think that Donald Trump is guilty? And the answer is lots of them will never see it. Most of them will never see it or they will see it filtered in such a way that completely distorts the essence of it. And I think uh, it's not that's not everything about what happened, but it is a big piece of it. Tim Miller, is there a, a beyond the, the social media and the, and the media environment uh, aspects of all of the, of the dynamics of all of this that I think everybody would agree with Sarah on? Is there a policy thing that we're seeing the end, of, the, the sort of end result of? Ronald Reagan very famously ran and, and, and governed against the very government the, of which he was executive. Um, you know, that whole sort of there's, you know, the worst, the, the most fearsome words or whatever it was he said, or I'm here, to, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Right. Um, so, I mean, is there a connection there? Uh, yes, there's a connection there, though. I, I would really kind of point the impetus of this back more towards the you know, kind of groups that challenged really the Reagan uh, Bush hegemony from within the party. I mean, if you look at Pat Buchanan, right, who I think is the real you know, sort of, um, you know, precursor to Trump. 
Um, George W. Bush is president in, 19, in 1991, and Pat Buchanan and David Duke challenge him in a primary. Um, uh, David Duke, obviously the KKK, Pat Buchanan running on this kind of nationalist, anti-immigrant, anti-foreigner, isolationist platform. They combined got about a quarter of the vote against a sitting president and George W. Bush during a time of this was before kind of the economy had turned, um, and which, which sort of gave Clinton the opening and, and you know, it allowed Perot to get in the race. So I, a lot of these voters, you know, so this was this kind of national strain was always there. And so then what happened over time, and I think Reagan certainly participated in this, but during my era in particular, we did, um, we tried to feed this beast. You know, and uh, you saw, you know, obviously the wall becomes a big issue that, you know, during this time. Um, obviously, the Tea Party had elements of this. And I think the establishment, the established Republican class, class tried to kind of feed this increasing nationalist populist fervor that was growing within the party from, you know, if it was, let's say it's a quarter, 25 percent in 1992. By the time Bush is there, you know, maybe it's a third of the party. And then, and then Bush makes this just massive error with the Iraq War, um, which which radicalizes you know people further uh, within the party and people who are kind of independently conservative minded. And then this group grows, right? They look at the establishment of the Republicans and they say, no, like these guys aren't representing me. What Bush, the compassionate conservatism, doesn't represent me. The Iraq War is a disaster. Why are we spending time over there? Why are my friends and cousins and nephews? Uh, you know, dying in Iraq when I don't, you know, care about whether there's democracy in Iraq, right? And so, you know, I just think this sort of Buchananite wing grew, 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 partly because of what Sarah talked about in the media, partly because of mistakes within the Republican establishment, partially because this is a, na a global trend, right? There are Trumps in like half the countries of the world right now um, running nationalist conservative parties. And and the established Republican class did a terrible job of managing it, and they fed the beast. Uh, they made it worse. Uh, they made mistakes that enabled it, and and I think that led us here. So yeah, I mean, I think that the small government, you know, some of the rhetoric that Reagan used and others, sure, I think if you look back at it, doesn't look as good in the light of day. But I I, I think that it was more, you know, kind of allowing this nationalist strain to grow and and feeding it through. Uh, conscious decisions and also mistakes that that made it more attractive. Sarah Longwell, earlier you mentioned the uh, the idea that Trump could splinter off into a, a third party, which sounded sort. I, I I think there was a lot of talk about that in December, post January sixth. That sounds like some people advising Donald Trump are are saying that you're better off trying to stay inside the Republican Party and control the Republican Party. In the meantime, there are CNN reported uh, in the last couple of days that there is a moderate group of, of former Republican elected officials who are now thinking of splintering off into their own center, center-right party. Um, what do you think is going to happen here? And what would you, and as a political consultant, political strategist, what do you think is the right thing to do? Uh, yeah, there's very much a conversation going on in kind of can call it never Trump world, but it's, it's, it's a bigger, it's bigger than that. It's sort of all of the, the folks, um, who are resistant to the sort of populist nationalist agenda direction that the Republican Party is going, but who also don't consider themselves Democrats. As a strategist, I will tell you, I am not a big third party person. Um, I just, uh, as, much, I, I, as much as I understand why people want to do it, 
um, until, like, as long as we have two dominant political parties, like, you are relegated to spoilers. You basically have three choices, right? You can either become a, a, a dedicated faction within the Republican Party and fight to change it. You can break off and be some kind of a third party, or you can become kind of the, the conservative wing of the Democratic Party. Um, and I would say that in this moment, the danger in splitting off into this sort of third party idea is that you probably end up attracting as many center-left Democrats as you do center-right Republicans. And I actually think, based on the last couple of elections, there's probably more moderate Democrats than there are moderate Republicans. And so what you do is you actually diminish the Democrats' opportunity or ability to hold what has become somewhat dangerous uh, National Republican Party at bay. Um, and so uh, so I'm not in favor of that. I, I tell you... Um, I think that there is great value and great, um, it is important what people like Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney and Jamie Herrera Butler and Mitt Romney and all of these folks who are Republicans who are kind of fighting to hold ground for the sane wing of the Republican Party, that is extremely important. We want to help those people fight that fight. At the same time, I think that as long as the Republican Party is going to be anti-democratic, they're going to object to free and fair elections. They're going to lie to voters about an election being stolen. Um, I think that those things are disqualifying when it comes to holding political power and that there is utility in ensuring that, you know, Kevin McCarthy doesn't become Speaker of the House, for example. Um, and so helping uh, moderate Democrats like, you know, a Connor Lamb, for example, beat, uh, beat a, a um, sort of a MAGA Republican candidate in Pennsylvania uh, would be something that even as a Republican I would value because I think that while I desperately want there to be a strong center-right party in this country, I don't think you get there without Republicans being sort of beaten back a couple of cycles and realizing that um, that they just can't win uh, with their current orientation. Tim Miller, would you agree with uh, what Sarah Longwell said that the Republican Party is or as it's con constituted now is acting in anti-democratic ways? Yeah, I mean, that's now that's you're asking me if the sky is blue. Yeah, the sky is blue. I mean, the president just literally tried a coup. I mean, I, I know that people like for some reason, this I, maybe it's because we're all in our homes with COVID or because he was so clownish and ridiculous that I, I don't think for a lot of people that is really sunk in that he tried to steal the election. Like he legitimately tried. It wasn't a joke. It wasn't a farce. It was an attempt to steal the election. It was a bad strategy for stealing an election. But, you know, if you're trying to rob a bank and you know you come in with a gun and it only has one bullet in it and you know there's a there's a you know bulletproof glass in front of it and you shoot the bulletproof glass and hit yourself in the face like you still go to jail for trying to steal for trying to rob the bank right i mean just because it was clownish doesn't mean it wasn't true so uh, yeah, it's anti-democratic and it's happening down at all these state levels, you know, where they where Republicans want fewer voting, want less voting. Uh, they are, you know, I think the one thing that unites the Republican Party right now is opposition to Democrats' efforts to have democracy and voting reforms. Um, so, I, I, absolutely. I think that in some ways they're explicitly anti-democratic, like Donald Trump and trying to steal an election. In other ways, it's kind of, uh, maybe a better way to put it is that the Republicans believe that they benefit from the inequities of the current structure of the current democratic structure in America uh, and that they want to maintain and and maybe even expand those inequities rather than do do something to, to level the playing field when you look at things like you know this the way the Senate's made up whether or not you should add any states when you look at the electoral college 
um, you know, things of this nature. So I, I absolutely think that's true. And I absolutely think they're a threat. And um, just really quick, one thing on the third party point, because I just think it's important, because this is the question I get everywhere. Um, Joe Biden right now is is managing a coalition that runs from like almost socialists like all the way over to free market Republicans, right? It is a big tent. Uh, it is unwieldy. It is not particularly stable, but he's managing it right now and doing a pretty good job. And everybody, you know, he's only three weeks in, but everybody's pretty happy in that unwieldy coalition uh, with what he's been doing so far. I, I, I think, you know, center centrist folks whether you consider yourself center right or center left being the ones to break that coalition up i think is a really dumb strategy right uh and that's just like giving the democratic party to the socialists and to the tsa wing and so you know i i i think that the best strategic move right now is helping joe biden maintain the center pole in our politics if you're a center right or a center left person uh and and if things change you know, in 2024, 2028, and somebody is is an anti-capitalist is, is has taken over the Democratic Party, and then there's a nationalist running the Republican Party, then yeah, maybe there's room for a third party then that makes sense. But I, I just think that the reality of right now, if you look at what Joe Biden's doing, really argues against a third party from a strategic standpoint, if you're a center voter. That's a very interesting yeah, point. Sarah just, Longwell, if, go if, ahead. If, if, well, Sorry, if, just, if Bernie Sanders had been the nominee, that would be a different story. But like right. the nominee and the winner was Joe Biden. Like I, I kind of handily, by the I, way. I know, <laughs> cut. That's right. Like there is, it is. It makes no sense in this moment to be talking about third party runs for the moderate or third party attempts uh, in the moderate wing of the Republican Party. And I think, look, it, it, it. But it does. It just speaks to something that is so tribal for people, right? Is that it is hard for a lot of people who've been Republicans all their lives. Uh, maybe they're socially very conservative. They just they can't figure out how to just like accept even making a short term kind of bet on on being the, the the sort of right wing of the Democratic Party. And instead, they just kind of have to think of themselves as Republicans, which I think is is worth. Um, I don't think we have to, like, hold on that tightly to that identity. Um, I think you have to think about it from a democracy standpoint, what's best for the country. It's really, you know, there are two things that uh, as we're talking about this, you know, these dynamics, there are two things that occurred to me. One is that that it's really good for Democrats if the Republican Party is strong as well. Right. This situation, this this instability right now is bad, not just bad for democracy, but it's also kind of bad for the Democratic Party. It cre it, it's an instability that kind of creeps in there as as, as well. Um, because these parties sort of create ballast in the system. But the other thing is that, you know, as you're talking about the anti-democratic actions of some Republican lawmakers and leaders, that um, this history of our country has been about kind of slowly expanding access to the tools of democracy. That, it, that you know, the franchise was not a gi given to everybody in the beginning and that um, and that there is always throughout our history this, this, ongoing, this ongoing tension between the, our aspirations to be a truly democratic, more perfect union, and the reality that we're nowhere near that. 
and we're and it's and it's always sort of a journey. That's just yeah. me getting philosophical for a moment, but I wanted to share that with you. Well, Sarah went to Kenyon, so I'll let her do the philosophical. <laughs> I was a GW hack, as you said at the start. So <laughs> let me just remind everybody that we are with Sarah Longwell and Tim Miller, a longtime Republican strategist. Tim does not consider himself a Republican anymore. Sarah's ish on that one. She said before the program started, we'll get into that. I'm sure one of you will ask. And if you want to ask them a question, please text your question to 330-541-5794, or you can tweet it at the City Club, and we'll work it into the program. And let me um, let me throw a question in, uh, from our one of our viewers at you. Are there enough Republicans in Congress willing to work with President Biden on actually passing some beneficial legislation, like an infrastructure plan, for instance, or is it still the objective of most to thwart, undercut, and block anything he and Democrats propose? Tim Miller. I think that's a big maybe right now. I'm, I wouldn't be optimistic about it, but I don't think that there's a 0% chance. Um, I think that getting to a 50-50 Senate sort of changed the calculation on that a little bit. Um, you know, the problem is with the filibuster, I mean, are there 10 Republicans in the Senate that'll work with them on something? Man, I, you know, that, that number is pretty big, right? I, I think that in some ways right now, by, you know, Biden almost benefits from it being 50-50 because there's, you know, there's almost very little hope to get to 10 for most things. Maybe an infrastructure, you know, maybe one or two things, you know, some criminal justice reform, something that they could get 10 on. But um, amazing, you know, Obama, really, that criminal justice reform is the thing they could get 10 on. Yeah, I mean, that's right. about I mean, there has been, that's huge shift. A huge yeah, there shift. has been a huge shift on that. That's a good point. But, you know, if you look at Obama, right, he was dealing with 58, 59, 57, right, uh, you know, it's the 56 Democratic senators at the beginning of his time, right, so getting to 60, like, was sort of this golden goose, right, like, you know, he was like Charlie with the football a lot of times, where it's like, if I could just get Olympia Snow, you know, we can make it happen, right, where it's, where now it's like, to get to the 10th person, you know, you need a pretty, you need these, you know, kind of Republicans who haven't shown much interest in working bipartisan, uh, uh, in a bipartisan fashion. So I think in the end, the Democrats will end up doing most things on party line with Biden trying to find a couple of things that he can get Republicans on board that aren't really hot button issues. Um, I'd have to think about it more. Infrastructure and criminal justice are two things that pop to mind as potential options there. Sarah Longwell. Yeah, I mean, I'm more. I'm always more optimistic about this than Tim is, um, and and part and part of that is. Um, so just take what just happened. So you know, Republicans showed up trying to deal with Biden. The ten of them, in fact, wrote a letter and they they made a counteroffer on the COVID bill. And Joe Biden said, "No thanks. I'm not even going to haggle on this with you. You're it's too low." And uh, I do think that that's an interesting. Play. I, I'll admit to being a little disappointed that there wasn't more back and forth because I do think that we need to get back to working on this muscle of how you wheel and deal and then create like a negotiation um, where everybody's a little happy and everyone's but, a little unhappy. But I do think in Biden doing this, sorry, I'll just finish this. Yeah. But the, I do think in Biden kind of laying down the law on that was too low, that it gives Republicans a little bit of an incentive to be like, you know, Maybe we like if we if we'd come back with something closer, he might have worked with them like Biden is interested in working with them. And so I think that this might be like his opening gambit and that down the road with infrastructure or even some other things, if they want to get credit for it, 
right? They may, there may be, there may be an ability. I'm just more yeah. optimistic. I, 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 and I'm glad there's optimism in this conversation. I think we would really <laughs> be down if there wasn't. But I think in this case with Biden, he had reconciliation available to him as a, as a route. So he didn't necessarily, he didn't need the Republicans as much as they no. kind of sort That's of right. needed to be part of a COVID. Dan, package. I haven't even gotten dark yet. You thought it was, you thought we've been <laughs> pessimistic so far. I, I feel like I've been pretty even keel. So you have, you have. Bear, just, yeah, bear down. It's a, it's a, it's been a, it's been a long Cleveland winter so far. Yeah. <laughs> and so we do need some, some sunshine. Um, here's another question for you both. What are the, cha- uh, well, we've talked about the third party and, uh, but what do you see as the, the, f- who is the future leader of a never Trump kind of movement? Both of you are kind of operatives inside of that, that never Trump moderate movement. Um, is it Mitt Romney? Will he remain in his role as a sort of senior member? Are we going to see Liz Cheney or Adam Kitzinger kind of rise or Senator Cassidy? Yeah, I'm going to go first on this so Sarah can think about a good answer because mine's going to be sad. Um, I, I don't think that there's a real answer to that question. I, I, I don't think that. I think that, unfortunately, um, the best possible future for a Republican Party is going to be with a leader that at some level dealt with Donald Trump and collaborated with him. And I think that that um, is why I'm not a Republican anymore, right? I, I can, I'm never going to be able to get there. Um, it, it was just too, too, you know, too poor of a judgment for me. But I, I think that there is potential, you know, particularly if things continue to go as bad as they have for Trump for, over the last two months, that somebody that was skeptical of Trump at times, you know, we can talk about this Nikki Haley profile, other, others, you know, could, um, you know, looked at, look, maybe used sometimes to criticize him, but, but genuinely can be trusted by, by MAGA voters. That's a tough, tight walk to walk, but I think there's at least a hope for that, um, you know, type of person, you know, a Haley type uh, to, to take over uh, the party. Um, I don't think that there's much of a hope for a Kinzinger type who I really think has been amazing over the last two months and admire him a great deal. Um, I think that potentially there is room in governorships, you know, and at state levels for there to be, you know, either moderate Republicans running or former Republicans. You know, I look at David Jolly, he's looking at Florida, he's considering running as an independent. I'd love for him to try to run as a Democrat. I think that, you know, in a state like Florida that's similar to Ohio, trending a little more red, a former Republican running as a Democrat might be a great solution for, you know, kind of winning a governorship and then sort of, you know, being able to sort of form more of a center wing to the Democratic Party. That seems more realistic to me than somebody like a like a Kinzinger. Um, than a pro-democracy in, in a, Republican? Than a pro-democracy Republican. Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty pessimistic about that. Sarah Longwell? Yeah, I mean, I don't think never Trump is not a really a thing to speak of going forward exactly. And so I think when you're when you're talking about it, right, what you mean is is kind of the the hardcore pro-democracy way of the Republican Party um, who who really resisted Donald Trump. And I think Tim is right to name check Nikki Haley. Um, and, and I don't say this. I say this with. I, I agree with Tim that for me, it's going to be very difficult to ever support somebody who I watch just absolutely buckle for Donald Trump and not speak up when it mattered. As far as I'm concerned, um, most of these people have been weighed and measured and found wanting. Like we saw what we saw how they behaved when the democracy was on the line. That being said, we are a much smaller faction to appeal to than the majority of the Republican Party. And I think uh, the vast majority of kind of, you know, passive observer Republicans who are there for kind of 
uh, either the, you know, the not gen broadly speaking, the economic policies or the tribal reasons, um, right down to almost the base. You know, I think that Nikki Haley is the one person who's figured out how to straddle, um, to, to, to kind of hold out hope for those of us who are who are Trump skeptical to be the hopeful person and dangle it in front of us from time to time while also, you know, posing with diamond and silk uh, and and making sure to show up at the Turning Point USA uh, events. And so I think she is the future of the Republican Party. And frankly, she's the best case scenario future for the Republican Party, because there's the alternative. My I, my uh, close friend of mine who's a writer for the Bulwark, Jonathan Lass, argues that I'm wrong to say Nikki Haley, that I am far too optimistic, that it is, they want pure, uncut, Don Jr., Trump again, you know, or some other Trump-like figure, Tucker, um, and that Nikki is actually yesterday's news. Can I just just yes, offer one other please, thing? Go. Yeah, I mean, because Ross Douthat, who I don't agree with very often, actually, um, uh, made a point this morning that I, that I, I did agree with, which is that he thinks the best case for a future Republican leader is somebody that isn't, that probably wasn't even a figure during the Trump era, right? And I think that if you look at the, I mean, look, the last two presidents, right? I mean, I mean, Barack Obama was not really a public figure uh, four years out. You know, mm -hmm. it was that 04 convention speech. He's a state senator, and then he's the president. Obviously, Donald Trump was, I guess, a public figure, but not really a serious political figure in any way before he wins. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't necessarily like a, a Pete, disagree. A Pete Buttigieg of the right. Pete Buttigieg, right, exactly. I mean, I think had things broken a little differently, Pete may, maybe could have been the nominee in the Democratic Party. So I, I, I think that that is maybe your most hopeful, that somebody can kind of avoid having to navigate all of the just muck and scandal and controversy of the Trump era and kind of take the posture, which I don't agree with, but again, which is going to be better than Tucker Carlson or Don Jr., which is like, you know, he did some good things on the immigration, you know, we should be a little tighter on immigration, and these guys did care a little too much about foreign wars, but we also need to care about democracy and pluralism and, you know, not banning people for their religion from the country, right? Like, so, that, that somebody could kind of emerge like that um that that isn't quite as stained um by the trump era maybe that's a state level political figure now maybe that's you know another outsider in focus groups uh with trump voters that i've watched um and that you both have probably conducted and watched as well some trump voters uh have said post after all of this after january 6th and believing that the election was stolen they're done with the, that. They are completely done with the party. They're done with with elections. They're done with political participation. Do you think that's true? Do you think that those hardcore Republicans, the of the ten million who who Trump brought into the party, that they are actually going to not vote again? Those are not Republicans. Like this is this is actually one of the keys to this, right? These are these are Trump voters, and this is the reason that Republicans don't know what to do right now because they do not know how to get 74 million people to vote for them. They just don't know how to do it. They look at what happened. They they're basically, look, if, if the coalition for Republicans is a straight line on one side, you've got Trump's people, low propensity voters, people who never voted before, uh, and but now they are, and suddenly you're viable in ways in which you couldn't have imagined in 2012 you'd be viable, turning out these white working class voters. But on the flip side, your, your ride or dies, the people who've been with you forever, these college-educated Republican voters in the suburbs, uh, 
they're starting to peel off because they don't want to be in a political coalition with Marjorie Taylor Greene. And so you start to be kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. And I think the worst case scenario for them is Trump is now out of the picture. And so you lose all of those people who were just there for the pure uncut Trump. But you've still got Marjorie Taylor Greene and the party going off the rails. So suburban voters are also like, I'm out of here um, because Joe Biden's a perfectly normal politician that I can that I can vote for. And they find themselves sort of cratering uh, without being able to do either of those things with anybody but Trump. Um, help us understand how Ohio fits into this picture. Um, we have Republican leadership across the state um, in uh, Mike DeWine and uh, Senator Rob Portman, John Husted, Dave Yost and others. Um, and we have also uh, Congressman Jim Jordan um, and uh, Larry Householder, the former House Speaker now under federal indictment. Um, you know, would George Voinovich recognize any of what's going on? Well, George Voinovich would probably have put on a MAGA hat, Dan. I don't think that there's uh, I don't think there's any reason to have hope for people from the past. Everybody that lived in the present put on the MAGA hat, except for like two of us. So um, <laughs> I don't you know, I, I don't look back with with a lot of a lot, a lot of hope that people would have acted differently um, from a different era. But um, I hope I'm wrong. I apologize if any of the Voinovich family's listening. But um, Look, uh, I think that Ohio is unique in that I think Kasich um, staying power, political staying power, and, and Kasich kind of had this ability to attract working class white voters in a little bit of a different way than Trump did, in a much healthier way. Obviously, I'm, I'm partial to Kasich. And so I, I think that kind of the transition to Trumpism happened at a different time in Ohio, you know, in the, the, when Borges, who, who got wrapped up in that scandal as well, was head of the Ohio GOP, it was really one of the last Republican parties in the country that was not Trumpified, right? The Kasich part, Ohio party in 16 was like one of like two or three parties that didn't really go along with it. Uh, John Kasich won Ohio in the primary. Yeah, exactly. So from an institutional standpoint, you know, now all 50 Republican parties are run by absolutely insane people, you know, um, uh, that like believe that, that Hugo Chavez stole the election I and mean, every local state party is crazy now. The Ohio one stayed longer. So I think that, you know, DeWine, obviously there's a family connection, Husted. So these, these are kind of vestigial Republicans, right, that are running the state. So it, I think it's an interesting laboratory, this primary coming up, actually. The Ohio Senate laboratory, prime, Republican primary, is a very interesting one. And, and I think that what you've seen Mandel do over the past week, which is basically, you know, tell the big lie and say that Republicans are, are, have stolen the election, um, shows you where he thinks the party is. And I think he's the front runner. And so I think that'll be interesting. Sarah, I, I know that uh, there's some domestic disturbances uh, behind you, it sounds like. Uh, it's my Oh, it's yours, Tim? It was Tim's. I totally thought it was yours, Sarah, because you so smirked. That was so sexist. I'm going to just call you out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just yeah. Uh, I, didn't think I, was, I didn't think we were going to be parenting today. We thought that the movies were going to uh, Monsters, Inc. was going to solve the problem, but See, I guess I, not. I, I knew it was Tim's because uh, Tim's child makes frequent appearances on live streams and podcasts. Uh, well, Tim, if, you're, if yeah. your child would like to run for Senate, please bring them forward now. A lot of people are throwing their, their hat <laughs> in that ring. Sarah, I, I didn't don't think mean... she'd be a good fit in a Republican primary in Ohio. But uh... <laughs> Sarah Longwell, um, who, what do you make of, of how that Senate primary is? I mean, we're two years out from, you know, from the, the, the election of 2022. Um, but how do you what do you make of how that's uh, how that's coming together or emerging in Ohio specifically? Yes. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was um, so concerned about Jim Jordan being the nominee, uh, who Why? I think is a unique 
Um, I think that Jim Jordan is a uniquely um, unpleasant figure in American politics. You know, I, I think that my litmus test these days really for um, how disqualified I think somebody is for public office is, is the extent to which they were promoters of Donald Trump's lie that the election was stolen. And I think that Jim Jordan certainly makes the top 10 list of people who push that really hard. Um, he has been somebody who has uh, made um, sort of stumping for Donald Trump his raison d'etre. Um, and so that I, I was I was just that was my concern. And then, of course, I should, um, I should mention says, that we've invited Jim Jordan to speak here at the City Club a number of times. And he um, has said yes, but hasn't scheduled it ever. So we'll, oh. we'll but hope hope does spring eternal. Um, Sarah, I continue, please. Um, so when when Josh Mandel announced in the way that he announced, which is to also say, I am here to provide all of you with uncut support for Donald Trump and his MAGA agenda. Um, and this and, and also with the lie, the Which, election was was stolen. Yeah. And you, uh, and you are almost quoting his announcement verbatim, except for that. I think you inserted the word uncut. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so and so I think that um, I, I didn't know that it could get worse than Jim Jordan. And I'm not necessarily sure that on the worst scale, but there but, but I, I it, it seems as though Mandel is insistent on being um, among some of the worst. I just the interesting thing with Mandel and, and I just think the telling thing about what about this Ohio Senate primary as, as, it, as it's shaping up with a former party chair with Mandel and others is. None, these are not kind of a new MAGA generation uh, running in this primary yet, right? I, you know, maybe somebody else will get in. Um, but Mandel, you know, so in 2018, as you guys know, you know, he kind of flirted with the alt-right and like had this sort of controversy where he was, you know, getting Mike Cernovich and, you know, all of these other, you know, really grotesque racist figures that he was, you know, playing footsies with. But in 2012, when he first ran against... Uh, you know, Sherrod, he kind of positioned himself as just like a general Republican guy. I mean, you know, in the 2012, Josh Mandel wasn't any different than Marco or, you know, you're sort of Rob Portman, right? And he didn't really position himself as significantly more outside what, what, what you would have thought of, of a Rob Portman type Republican. Uh, and so to see now him in 2018 have to kind of, you know, try to try to court the far right and then now he's doing this sort of big lie nonsense I think is telling right for what what is happening with this party right which is that you have a very small number of people who are pure MAGA that they want the party to be nationalist that they are maybe racist themselves that they are conspiratorial themselves and they want to overthrow the establishment but that's only like 20% of the politicians, maybe even less. The big group, 60% of them, are scared of the 20 and are just, and are just kind of playing cosplay racist MAGA in order to you know, get by. And, and I think that that's what you're seeing from most of the politicians, which is why it's so disappointing and enraging and frustrating. And, and I think that it's possible that every candidate in the Ohio Senate race will end up being in that middle 60%, which is people who like... You know, if Mitt Romney had been president, they would have been Mitt Romney Republicans. But now that they see that the tea leaves moving the other way, they're going to pretend to be MAGA Republicans. And, and that's where I see all of basically the main Ohio players right now, is there, besides Jordan, who I think is, is really the uncut real deal. Is there room in the future of the Republican Party for the, for the Dave Joyce's of the party, members of the Problem Solvers Caucus? 
I love the problem solvers. <laughs> it's just he's so silly now. Um, I, you know, we'll see. Look, 11, there were 11, 10, 11, 10, 10. I, I had 11 because of Romney. 10 House members voted to impeach. 10. Mm-hmm. Like that was it, right? So and Anthony Gonzalez, uh, uh, yeah, Gonza- you know, and Gonzalez, and I think Gonzalez is actually an interesting model. I'm glad you brought him up because I meant to bring him up. Um, he's an interesting model because he is not positioning himself like Kinzinger, right? As somebody who like is a friend of the bulwark, never Trump cuck crowd, right? Like he very much is positioning himself as like I'm a new kind of conservative, right? Who is you know uh, like has some. Um, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's a conservative ideolo- ideologically. I think that is sympathetic to Trump in some of the kind of changes within the party from maybe sort of this old line Republican Party that was outdated. Uh, but at the same time, he's like, I also see reality and up is up and down is down. And like, you know, this guy tried to coup and incited a mob that killed a cop. So I have to vote to impeach. I- I'm intrigued by that. Now, Mandela attacked him. But um, I, I'm glad that there are Gonzalez's out there because one thing we've been missing the last four years is people who don't go full anti-Trump, mm-hmm. who just say, I'm going to call some strikes here when you're over the line, but I'm still going to be a conservative. I'm still going to be a Republican. Ben Sass tried that for like a minute and then he went in hiding until he won his primary and then he came back out and started doing it again. But I, I'm interested in a Gonzalez type to really give that a try because that hasn't been tried yet. And I'm encouraged that the fact that that might work. And like like many of those other nine Republican congressional representatives who voted for impeachment, he faced local censure attempts, but they but in the end they didn't succeed in censuring in censuring him. Sarah Longwell, um, in the wake of another question from a viewer, in the wake of Rob Portman, Pat Toomey, and Richard Burr all making these early announcements that they will not seek reelection, do you foresee more Republican incumbent senators deciding they don't want to be a part of the party's future? Yeah, well, then Shelby retired also. Um, I mean, there there is um, th- this is the way that I would describe this is it's like the dinosaurs fashioning their own meteor uh, because people like Rob Portman, people like I mean, let's take a Marco. Let's let's talk about Rubio. OK, Marco, Rub- the chances of Marco Rubio getting primaried by Ivanka Trump are like pretty good. And when he got asked about this on national TV, he kind of started stammering around. Somebody, you know, Neil Cavuto asked, said to Marco, well, yeah, I hear that, that uh, Ivanka Trump's thinking about a primary. And he goes, uh, um, uh, well, I, I, like, I like Ivanka Trump. You know, like he just, he didn't, they, these guys have created the environment in which, um, you know, the Trump brand is everything. The whole litmus test for their, their reason for being is their fidelity or their commitment and loyalty to Donald Trump. And none of them can be MAGA enough for people. Look at Lindsey Graham. When Lindsey Graham decided he was going to buck Trump after the insurrection, he said, I'm done. I've been loyal to him, but I'm done. What happens? He gets shouted down in an airport in a scary way, just like the mob comes for him. And so, you know, they have, yes, people are leaving the party because they don't know how to exist as a traditional Republican with voters who all they want from them is loyalty to Donald Trump. And the fact is, these guys have been so loyal to Donald Trump. They've gone along with everything and it's still not enough. Donald Trump still is telling, um, you know, people who've just even made the slightest peep that he's going to come primary them. Uh, and I think some of them just, you know, these are young people. Toomey had a lot of time left. Portman had a lot of young in uh, Senate years. And, um, and, and, <laughs> they and they're out because they don't want to do it. Yeah, North Carolina is another interesting one. If Lara Trump gets in there, that's what I'm keeping my eye on. Uh, she's an interesting 
case because she's like full MAGA, unlike Ivanka, who tries to kind of has the, I think wants to still be liked in New York um, and uh, uh, isn't as dumb as Don Jr. And so, you know, if she were to get into that North Carolina Senate primary, you could really imagine, and North Carolina went, went for Trump. Um, you could imagine having a Trump in the Senate. I, I just think that's an important thing to watch. I don't, the Ivanka thing kind of seems more like a fun parlor game. I don't know that she'll actually well, primary Marco, but I, I think having a, you know his daughter-in-law in the Senate is is you know not a hundred percent chance, but forty, sixty, right, thirty percent chance now. And I think that would kind of create a di- much different point of view of where we are at within the party in 2022 we could do this all day but we have to leave it here tim miller is a i know it's already over i didn't know i'm sorry (laughs) that's okay no 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 it's okay tim miller's a writer with the bulwark also a political consultant sarah longwell has her own political consultancy as well we're so grateful to both of you these are big challenges for democracy and i think you've helped uh, shed some light we really appreciate it thank you so much thanks dan thanks Thanks for having us Thanks also to our member sponsors and donors and others who support our mission to create conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. We've got a lot of great conversations coming up in the next week or two. Please check it out at cityclub.org, and you can check out what you missed there as well as find them on uh, PBS Passport, Roku, Amazon Fire, and other places as well. Special thanks to City Club member volunteer Steve Hinkle. You made this forum today possible. Thank you all. Stay safe and healthy. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.